Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode on the All-Stars Journey. In this episode, we chat with Brittany Flynn. Brittany resides in Queensland, Australia. She has travelled over to the US and Canada, working and training out of many ranches overseas. She's not really known for being a show pen competitor, but getting her work done in an outside environment. She has spent many years working for an outstanding horseman that goes by the name of Phil Rohde. And she won the first ever race to ranch, which is where you take a racehorse and train it in a hundred days to go and compete in a ranch style competition. Anyway, let's get chatting to Brittany and find out more about her story. Our proud sponsor for this episode is Natasha Daly from Stitchamon. They're located on Main Street in Lithgow. Tash can help you with all your embroidering custom heat press needs, whether it's workwear, sports teams, jackets and prizes. Just send her an email and she can help you out. She also does vehicle signs, magnets, banners, business cards, logos and various apparel. She also looks after my merchandise and keeps me looking great. She also looks after the New South Wales Reigning Horse Association merchandise too. So if you're in need of any merchandise, don't be afraid to catch Natasha Daly from Stitchem on Embroidery. You can find her on Facebook. Hello. Hey, Brittany. How are you going? Good. Sorry about that. That was uh, that was a big morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. How many cattle? It was an, a def- oh, we we have a we have a fair uh, couple of different mobs, but um, this morning we have about seven hundred cows, and they're all calving, and they decided that they would just populate like four different paddocks. <laughs> so. <laughs> It was quite fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was a huge day. Yes, yeah, huge morning. Yeah, sure. What time did you start? Oh, well, we kind of didn't prepare for that. So we started a fair bit later. We started at like eight and then we got right. out there and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's all right. It always makes it more interesting and more fun when things like that happen too. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it really does. cool awesome so let's try and get this podcast going again for the what was it the 17th time i think (laughs) yeah it feels like it hey yeah i've I've made sure my phone won't lock so that's that's a good start oh awesome this is okay sweet all right so well let's just get straight into it um how did you get involved with horses um yeah so I came from a pretty horse-oriented family, um, but I think my mum tried pretty hard to keep me out of it (laughs) for as long as she could. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it didn't work. It must have been in my blood. So all my family have been heavily involved with, like, eventing. Um, Like my grandparents and my aunties, they were racehorse trainers. And, you know, so it it was just a natural evolution, I guess. And uh, my first horse was a 
run out station bred Appaloosa that we got out the back of Wooten in New South Wales and he was covered in lice and mites and he was advertising the Newcastle Herald for $400. Wow. And uh, my mum was like, yeah, this looks like the best horse ever. We're totally going to go buy this horse. <laughs> and he, he was uh, he was so poor and he was so slow and he was just the best thing that I needed for about two weeks until the feed kicked in and he started feeling good and he didn't have lice anymore and, you know, then things really started to go downhill and I think I fell off like every single time I rode and I'm like most kids are just like have heaps of guts and fall off 25 times a day and get back on. I never actually got that. That, uh, that bug. I just was like, hang on, this actually isn't very fun. Um, I seem to be hurting myself <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> I don't really think I want to keep doing this. But for some reason the want to do it overrode the fear and so I kept doing it, broke my arm and then uh, my mum decided, well, obviously this horse isn't really great so I'll get the next best thing. <laughs> Which would be an off-the-track thoroughbred. <laughs> <laughs> it just keeps getting better. I know, right? And so <laughs> I don't actually know that when I think about it, I'm like, how did that even happen? But anyway, so, yeah, two broken arms at the same of this horse, which can I just say for everybody, having two broken arms at the same time is really quite hard to live your life, <laughs> especially... <laughs> Especially to wipe your own bottom is pretty hard. But anyway, um, so I decided that that was not fun also anymore. And I think I was probably at the point where this was when I was about 13 or 14. I was just ready to give up. Like I thought, man, like all these other people have fun, but I don't actually know how they're having fun because I'm never having fun. I'm just scared all the time and I'm hurting myself all the time. And it just, I spent most of the time in tears and, I don't know, I just thought this is not for me. But one day, I think it was a last-ditch effort, somebody invited me to this expo at the local RDA and there was a was a uh, Pirelli demo by a local Pirelli instructor and I don't think I quite understood the, any of the concept of anything at that time, but all I did see were that there were these he the instructor had these two kids and they were riding their horses around in this indoor bareback and one of them was doing it bridleless and they were like jumping and you know cantering onto horse trailers and and I was like wow no one's seen and actually no one's crying so sign me up (laughs) (laughs) it's always good when that happens I know. I was like, take all my mum's money and, <laughs> and just, I'm in. I don't care what it is. I don't know what it is, but I'm in. So I think, yeah, that kind of, um, that was the lifesaver, <laughs> I think, um, at that time. So, yeah, that's how, kind of how I got into horses. I got, yeah, started kind of late and had a rocky start, but um, 
that's kind of how it all worked out. Yeah, nice. So did you, I know you said before your family was involved with racehorses and eventing and stuff. Did you ever get involved in any of that, those industries as well? Um, I didn't. My my mum was pretty, like, not involved in racehorses as much except for maybe getting a couple off the track and, and um, yeah, not not in that way. I just mainly went down the whole pony club route and then I went straight from pony club into, like, competitive show jumping. Um, and that was that was basically the natural evolution of there. There wasn't really any other options of any different styles of horsemanship but it was quite a bit of just backyard riding as well you know jumping over logs and going on trail rides and and that kind of thing so yeah I wasn't heavily involved in um the racing industry at all yeah nice okay yeah cool so once you started attending the Pirelli clinics and getting involved in that side of things how did you where did your horses take you next yeah so that's a good question so I basically um just spent heaps of time I guess um, kind of getting familiarized with that program and that sort of opened up the whole conversation about horsemanship you know that was the first time that anyone had ever mentioned anything remotely related to doing things a bit more ethically or even logically I guess um, so that was sort of how I got started in there and I, I was able to get a really cool horse um, who had gone like through the Pirelli program and stuff. So um, it, that was fun. That was really fun for a kid, you know, to kind of be in, a, be in a space where just hanging out with your horse was totally fine and, and doing all these games with all these like little sticks and stuff was celebrated and, and, you know, riding around a halter and just it, – it was just a really fun introduction and a, and a much, like, safer introduction to, to horses and horsemanship, I feel, than, than what I had had, which was the whole, like, real heavy pony club influence, um, which was mainly just really competitive. And, you know, if you fell off, you kicked your horse up the guts and get back on and show it who's boss. So it was a fun – it was a fun way to, to get into horsemanship. And I kind of um, went through a phase where I like bagged it out quite a bit because, you know, we all, we all went um, down like the people that sort of went down the Pirelli road or saw the Pirelli road. It, it sort of was a bit weird and a bit left field. And I, and I went that way as well. And I was like, yeah, it's a scam and all this, but now I sort of look back and I think if not for that, I probably would never have had any introduction to horsemanship. I just would have carried down that same old school traditional road where I was just basically breaking my bones all the time and just hated horses. So, um, yeah, it was a gateway, I guess you'd say, a gateway into to thinking, realising that there was another way. Anyway, I I kind of carried along and I tried to um, assimilate my horsemanship knowledge with my show jumping passion that I had but I just got further and further down the road and I realized that I really struggled to make those two 
meet. I found I had to sacrifice my horses a lot and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I also found that my horses weren't really having a lot of fun either and that wasn't part of the the MO of what I needed to be doing with my life for show jumping. So, yeah, I, I got a bit disillusioned. I just kind of didn't really know where to go with my horses. I thought, like, I really enjoy them and, and I had been dabbling with, you know, maybe playing with some problem horses or starting some young horses, getting some ones from the sales or whatever and playing with them. But I didn't really know where to go from there. And I think I somebody told me about Buck Brunneman and said he was coming to Jindabyne and I read his book and I thought, well, this guy, he, he knows his stuff. Like I'm, I'm going to go. So I took my show, big old show jumper and I rode around that big indoor with my tiny <laughs> little saddle and this tiny little girl. And uh, I don't really think, to be honest, I got that much out of it now when I look back. But it was really good to see that there was a place to go further with my horsemanship. At that time, I didn't. it didn't make a lot of sense to me, but I knew that that's sort of where I wanted to head. So I, I went down that rabbit hole and I started really searching and trying to learn and and outside of the uh, Pirelli system it wasn't easy trying to find people that were horsemanship focused um, that but wasn't aligned with that program that wasn't really serving me anymore so yeah I, I just sort of dabbled around on my own I started like reading books and watching videos and breaking in horses and probably doing a really terrible job as well, but learning along the way. I remember I, I like, fell off in my round pen at, and I got lawn darted so bad. And for some reason I thought that Crush at Us was a really good thing to have <laughs> in my Ouch. round pen <laughs> until I took, like, all the skin off my face. And then I realised it probably isn't a great thing. This is, this is how you learn when you don't really have anyone to show you. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I I dabbled around with that kind of stuff and I really realised it's what I wanted to do but I was pretty lost still. And somebody said to me again, oh, did you hear Ray Hunt is coming to Australia? Now through Buck's book I had obviously learnt that Ray was like the guy. He was the guy that you want to see if you want to know about horses. So I thought, well, I will try whatever I can do to do that. And he was pretty old. At, Ray was pretty old at that this stage. Um, so I kind of knew that it was this was my last chance if I wanted to see this guy. And I was seriously broke. I was like 17, 18 maybe. Um, I was seriously broke. And I found somebody who was willing to pay me to do the cult start if I started oh, their cult for them. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, I thought it was a really great thing. <laughs> <laughs> until until they were like, oh, just come out to our place and um, we've got a truck to load this horse on to take him to Wingen Showground, which was near Scone. I was like, sweet, let's do this. And I rocked up and they get on their quad and they, they round this horse up out of their forage sorghum over its head like it was so tall I couldn't even see what they were getting out of the sorghum until this like half clumper looking thing just comes running out of the rows of sorghum 
I'm like, oh no, what is this? What have I done? <laughs> and it turns out they said, oh yeah, it's quite well bred. It's a quarter horse Welsh section D. So it was like a Welsh pony, but like the big versions of them. So I think they're like about 14 2 or something. Yep. And, and, a, and a quarter horse cross. And this thing was so fat, like it was like a barrel. It had never had its feet trimmed. It had actually never, ever had anyone touch it before. Um, so it was just running around in this paddock by itself. And I'm like, oh, sweet, <laughs> let's do this. So they, <laughs> load, they, they loaded it on the truck and then they, I followed the truck to the showground. They dropped me off at the showground, gave me a wave and said bye. And I'm like, cool. And then I realised that this horse had never really ever seen people before. And I thought, well, tomorrow I'm going to have to ride this thing. So what are you going to do here? I'd spent that day, that afternoon, trying to touch it. Um, And I ended up somehow getting a halter on it and sort of half getting it a little bit halter broke before the clinic the next day. And then clinic rolls around the next day and (laughs) they, they, uh, they asked us all to bring our horses into the rodeo arena and I did and that was fine. And I, I managed to hold on to this horse somehow. And then Ray said, righto, like in twos or threes, you're going to come and you're going to bring your horses and you can put them in this little round pen and we'll get you all saddled. And I thought, righto, well, well, I guess I can do that. That's fine. So in we go into the round pen. I'm in with one other person in the round pen. And he's kind of talking through to the crowd in the grandstand and talking about what we're looking for and getting and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but I don't really think this horse even knew I existed, to be honest. He was kind of riggy and he was just looking around at everybody else, thinking about he's going to, which, which of the horses he was going to breed while he was there. So to get the saddle on wasn't that hard because he didn't really know that I existed. <laughs> and, <laughs> So we got him saddled and and he said, like, move their feet around a little bit and, and you know, you're right, you can just go. Out, out you go, out of the round pen. So I went out the round pen, still on the lead. I wasn't riding it. And then he said, righto, get their feet moving around. Now everybody undo your halters and let the horses go. And I thought, okay, well, I can do that. I'm going to let my horse go. I let him go. And he just starts trotting around with all the other colts. They start trotting around. All the other colts are feeling their saddles and sort of pig rooting and doing a little bark and whatever. Anyway, my horse just goes, oh, look at that really pretty man on the other side of the, the rodeo arena. I'm just going to trot over there to look at her. Maybe I might think about breeding her. And he sort of runs over there and he runs. And then I think he must have realised at some stage that there was a saddle like on him. So he starts running faster and faster and and he gets over the mare. But by this stage, I think the concern about the saddle that he never actually realised was there took over the fact that he wanted to breed this mare and he starts running really fast. And then all the other horses start running fast and then they start, and he starts bucking and running and bucking and running. And I was like, oh, God, this is so embarrassing. Of course, it's my horse that's setting everybody else's horses off, like far out. <laughs> anyway, Ray's just sitting in the middle of the the radio arena in his little buggy like don't worry about it it's fine just let him go and and then I'm watching him run and my heart starts to sink because I see 
that my saddle is starting to roll. Of course it's starting to roll because it's some crappy saddle that I'd saved up all my money for and this horse is fatter than anything that you've seen in your life. And it start, then this horse starts getting more and more worried and the saddle is now... And this horse goes, I've had enough. I'm out of here. I cannot handle this any longer. So he just lines up the buck and shoots at the end of the rodeo arena and just runs flat out to these buck and shoots. And I was like, he's either going to die or I don't know what's going to happen here. And he jumps and he jumps right out over the top of those buck and shoots with the saddle underneath his belly. Wow. And I was just like wanting to die. I was like, please. Can this be anyone else's horse but mine? And that was mine. And I had to live with that fact that it was mine. And now I had to go and deal with it. So I like just quickly like run out of the arena, like jump over the panels. And I get this this whole this horse caught and he's just standing in the little catch pen at the back of the bike and shoot. So he he didn't care. And he was like, Why is this thing under my belly? So I managed to get him caught and re-saddled and everything. And I remember walking out of that arena and I around out of the buck and shoots and I thought he's going to absolutely eat me alive. Ray is going to tear shreds off me because I had seen the way he spoke to people. I had seen the way he just never held back. He he would just say it how it is. He would not sugarcoat anything and I thought here it goes. Here is my turn to have myself absolutely roasted by the godfather of horsemanship himself and if that if there could have been a hole in that rodeo arena just open up and just eat me I would have been really happy with that but <laughs> it didn't and he just turned to me and he why didn't one of you boys go and check that little girl's cinch before she let that horse go that is all he said he could have said a thousand things <laughs> And all he did was blame somebody else. It's a lucky day. And I was day. like, it was my lucky day. I just, I just breathed the biggest sigh of relief. And they all kind of came over and, and all the fellas on the side came over and they sort of helped me cinch him up, basically cut him in half with the cinch. And that was it. I dodged it. I don't know how I dodged it, but I did. And anyway... Chief kept going along and, and we, we all got out, got on our horses somehow in that arena and then we all got them ridden, all gates each way. And then he just, Ray just said, right, oh, open her up. And he just opened up that rodeo arena straight into the showground with these cults. <laughs> and the last thing I remember him saying before he opened the gate was make sure you've got to bend on them horses and make sure you can get to the feet. Wait, what? <laughs> but it was too late because we were already sitting it across the, the showground and I thought, oh, that's what he meant. But I didn't realise that when you probably have a snaffle in a colt's mouth for the first time, you're supposed to have a, um, like a chin strap. I had no idea about these kind of things. And I went to bend to get to my horse's feet, like Ray said. And all that happened is the colt opened his mouth and the bridle just slid through his mouth. And I think he ended up oh, with like no. the... <laughs> I think he ended up with like the cheek straps. 
in his mouth. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because uh, I'm trying all my might to get a bend on this thing. And I eventually got it bent, I think, just as we hit that, like, knee-high little white picket fence around the outside of the showground. That, that's about there where I got a bend, where I got him stopped. And then everyone else got their horses stopped too. And, and then a few people came up to me and was, like, pointing at my bridle. And I'm like, what? What do you what? I survived that. Like, we're fine now. <laughs> then I realised, oh, okay. Anyway, I don't know. Ray just never said much to me. He was probably like, you are just, I'm surprised you're alive. I was surprised I was alive too. And there was one guy there who watched this whole debacle and his name was Phil Rohde. And, like, he's a pretty well-known but fly-under-the-radar horseman around the Hunter Valley and he came up to me and he must have realised that there was no way that this cult was broke and I was going to need some serious help. And he said to me, if you ever get in trouble with that cult, give me a call. And I was like, as if I'm going to call you. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and I've heard about you and you have a reputation for being pretty grumpy and I don't think I want to deal with you. So I was like, yeah, thanks, whatever, okay, bye. I went home and, yes, I did get into trouble with that colt. The next time I saddled him, I just saddled him like he'd been saddled 100 times, even though it was obviously only the third time he'd been saddled. And so we had a bit of a issue. And I rang Phil and I said, you were right, I need some help. <laughs> and <laughs> and he, he'd been expecting my phone call for sure. And um, he said, right, I, well, load him up and bring him over and I don't I don't think I left for three years I stayed there and I ended up working with Phil for that long I I started I got to start many cults under his guidance and I realized I knew absolutely nothing which was a really great experience to learn that you know absolutely nothing under the guidance of somebody that can stop you from killing yourself so that was a blessing, an absolute blessing. So I'd been very lucky to have that really excellent grounding from somebody who could show me so much um, and help me so much without um, kind of overfacing me or, with, or, or making me or, or without um, – also making me believe that I could do more than what I could. So it always kind of kept me safe and kept me along and kept me going well until, yeah, I, I was starting like quite a lot of cults and, and I really enjoyed it I, and I yeah. still do. I, yeah, I really awesome. enjoyed it. Yeah. That, that's, that's quite interesting that you brought up Phil Rohde because um, one of my mentors, Rob Lawson, worked for Phil as well and we went to – it was a Buck Brennerman clinic out at Jindabyne. We went to one year, like years ago, might've been like his second last one he came to Australia for. And Rob yes. introduced me to Phil as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So the horse industry is a small world. A very small. I think that, that one was, might've been his second last one there at Jindabyne. That might've been the one that I actually ended up getting in the cult start on that one. So it was quite a few years later and, um, yeah, it, it was it's, kind of like full circle. Yeah, because there was a little black horse there, I remember, and that there was a lady having a bit of trouble 
And I think Phil Phil kind of helped her a little bit in the breaks. Yes. With that horse every now that. and again. Yes, yep. I do remember that. Could have been me even because I think the colt I was starting was black. But there was about three black horses there. So yeah, that's I can't right. remember. Might have been me. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> yeah. Rob walked up to Phil and Rob goes, I'd really like to help that lady there with the, the black horse. And Phil goes, yeah. oh, don't worry, I've, I've kind of already been helping her a little bit. Yeah, that might have been me. I don't know. Could have been, <laughs> for sure, because she was pretty ranked. <laughs> that yes. little man, yep. she was pretty ranked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so when you worked for Phil, was it a – like you, you worked for him and then you were kind of, did you turn into like a professional to train horses for other people or? Yeah. So I, he, he gave me a really great opportunity. He said, you, you can like basically lease my facilities. You can work for yourself out of my place and I'll be here. And like, it's completely your deal. You get to do whatever you want to do, but I'll be here if you get into trouble or you need a hand whatever so he it was really great so I wasn't employed I was able to get started on my own two feet but I always had somebody there to help me out if if I got into a sticky spot with a horse which um was really great and then in turn I was I was able to ride a lot of his like younger horses for him or like get them ready get them saddled you know or sometimes because we we would do a lot where we would have one person on a colt and one person on a saddle horse and we would work each colt off the saddle horse. And so I got that experience and I got that skill, which is um, really invaluable um, through that kind of partner experience, which was really great. Yeah. So, yeah, I was able I was able to do that for, for quite a while and I really enjoyed it. I did. I realized that it wasn't something sustainable for me at that period of my life because I wanted to do so many things. I wanted to travel. I wanted to get married. I wanted to do all that. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this if I'm a busted ass cult starter. Like, <laughs> I could never <laughs> afford my own place. Like, how am I even going to do this? So, I had trouble seeing how to how to f- make it work in a in a a future kind of way so and that stage I I was I was with my boyfriend who who is now my husband James and I thought oh, like how do we kind of work together this is like how do I make this work and so I thought the next best thing would be if we work together and if we want to work together maybe we could work on properties together or something and so we got married and we basically sold everything we owned and went over to the States and we had some really good contacts over there through Phil and some other people we'd met like Tom Curtin and all of that. So it was, it was really great that we had like a leg up of a good industry of people to show us around and, and yeah, just give us a really great time, which we did. And, and um, we got to compete in uh in a ranch rodeo over there, which was really fun because, oh, um, nice. yeah, I had through obviously the, um, like the natural evolution of Buck Brenneman, you kind of get interested in that Buckaroo Vaquero style horsemanship, um, like especially through Ray Hunt and all that. And that is the natural progression of then becoming interested in roping, which I did and I still do. Um, 
so we we were so green, like unbelievably green when we went over to the States. Like I can't even tell you how wet behind the ears we were. But <laughs> we decided let's get a job in Canada on a ranch. So we basically just advertised on Facebook and the first guy to respond was like, yep, meet me at this ranch rodeo net and you've got a job for the season. And we were like, yay. <laughs> we did not know what we were in for. We did not know what we were in for. But that was an insanely amazing experience. I got to see how horsemanship, ranch roping, like, like, um, like your, your skills that you have with your horses apply to cattle apply to you know my colt starting skills like and um kind of like the tool handling skills i mean like handling ropes and handling multiple horses and you know being handy enough to be able to just get by on a day-to-day basis really came in handy there but made me realize how much i had no idea what i was doing and (laughs) so we survived. We survived our whole season um, there on Sleepy Springs Ranch and it was one of the most grounding, humbling and backbreaking and exhausting experiences of my life but I would never change it for anything. Um, I think the last day we worked there, we were loading out cattle in a blizzard and oh, wow. it was minus 35 but the wind chill factor was like minus fifty five, like Fahrenheit. If you can, or Celsius. Celsius, yeah. Oh wow! If you can survive that, you can survive anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, basically after that, um, we came home and we were like bona fide buckaroos and <laughs> we, we thought we were like we thought we were all that and we basically just jumped straight into working on stations and have ever since and um going around like new south wales and queensland kind of building up our skills figuring out you know what we like to do what we don't like to do how we like to work how we don't like to work what works what doesn't and, um, yeah, now we're on a, um, a big cattle property, um, James and I manage in out, just out of Kanamala in yeah, the nice. uh, big, big desert country. So that's where we are now, yeah. Awesome. And love it, yeah. So when you're over in Canada, what did you find was different to what we kind of do over here? And what were some tools that you picked up over there that have made life easier over here for you? Yeah, well, one of the major things um, over there, which like I will, I miss, I miss like every day is they use horses for everything. They use horses. They pretty much, you just never get on foot ever, even to work in the yards. So the skills and the brokenness that your horses have to have, you have to be able to get up in the morning. You have to be able to, you know, load up, saddled, ready to go then you got to be able to get on your horse and be ready to you know gather however many cattle that we have to gather get them into the yards then on your horse you have to be able to work alleys work gates you know to be able to feed into the yards everything is done on horseback you know got to be able to work a flag off a horse because sometimes you need to use flags 
you know, um, sometimes if we're not doing anything in the yards, we'll just be checking and doctoring what we find out in the paddock. And that's yep. not like here where you're like, oh, that look, there's one that's sick over there. We'll either shoot it or walk it 40Ks to the yards. It was like, no, we'll just rope it right now, treat it and go. And so like cattle handling, horse handling and cattle handling is like your bread and butter, having a well-broke horse that was easy to manoeuvre, that was respectful and can rate cattle enabled you to get the job done without dying and also enabled you to treat the cattle really, really well, Um, which is something that I had never been exposed to, you know, Um, changed my life when we, when I saw how they, you know, their branding was over there, just keep the cows and calves together. They never get separated. Your horse has to be able to be in a high pressure environment. So you need to be able to head and heel rope at within a rodeo so where the cows and calves are uh, enclosed in a smaller pen so your horse has to be able to go in there pick out a calf drag it to the fire needs to be able to be you know needled tagged and if it's a boy needs to be castrated and then as soon as all of that trauma is over it's back with its mum and then you need to be able to identify and your horse needs to be able to identify like, okay, that calf has already been treated because it has a paint mark on its back. We need to be able to go and get this calf in here and do it in a really safe way. And the horses are just their friends. They're very, um, their performance is really great because they can still go to town and win a lot, but they're, they're really excellent tools. And um, that's just something we don't do here. We do not use our horses to that degree. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool, like just being able to go out into a paddock and just seeing a couple of sick calves and go, right, let's just fix it here. Yeah, exactly. The pressure is like completely taken off your cattle. Your cattle don't really mind because they know it's like a really quick thing, whatever needs to happen, and then it's over. It's not a massive ordeal to take the whole mob into the yards just to get a few or we, or you, we just don't do our animal husbandry because it's too big and too far and too hard. Yep. Do, do you find the cattle are a bit quieter doing that type of stuff too? Um, yeah, I find it It does depend, obviously, because you have good and bad operators you know, in no matter which handling um, scenario that you're in. But I find generally um, those cattle, they know how to give to pressure because they know when they get roped they have to surrender. It's kind of like cattle that get, that get handled through a feedlot in a crush situation a fair bit. They know that they need to surrender to that experience and then as soon as they surrender and it's over, they get to go. And these cattle all know that. And, and, and like the Canadian cattle, they all know that. They know how to give to pressure. It's almost like, it's almost like they're kind of halter broke in a way. <laughs> they know how That's to give cool. to pressure. They know, they know that this has happened. They've had it happen to them as a calf. They're kind of conditioned to the experience and um, they're, they're never traumatised because it's quick and it's over and they're never taken away from their moms. They're never taken away from their friends. So it's they kind of accept it. Oh, awesome. Mm. So, so just kind of chatting on the cattle side of things too and probably the later, later parts of life, you've already had a lot of experiences that have like with horses and that that have already changed the way you work with them. 
but what other experiences have you had? Like meeting Ray Hunt and Buck Brenneman, that, you know, and Phil Rohde, they all would have been extreme life changes on how you deal with horses. But what have you had after those? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I've had some... Um, I've had some really great learnings probably, I guess, recently. Um, I, for, I guess I kind of pushed myself into wanting to learn a little bit more about the buckaroo tradition and how to um, further my horsemanship a little bit greater um, through the hackamore to bridle um, tradition and that's something that I'd kind of been aware of but I thought I was never good enough to do until I met a really good friend who you actually um, had on your podcast recently Phil Monaghan and um, he was really great because he showed me that um, you know you don't have to have a special buckle you don't have to have a special no one needs to come along and anoint you and say you are now good enough to ride a bridle horse. And I had seen these bridle horses when I was in the States and Canada. I'd seen horses that that proudly packed a spade bit and were like hair trigger basically and were calm and soft in the eye but really proud. And I thought, oh, I could never do that. But Phil kind of break down the mysticism about that. Phil Monaghan break down the mysticism about that for me and showed me that, like, if I wanted to, I could do it and I just had to jump in. And as soon as I jumped in, I would learn how to do it, which is yep. a very, <laughs> which yeah, is a very strange daunting. concept. It is very, very strange concept because you've got this huge bit and you've got this huge, like, all these godfathers of horsemanship around you, like, ride in this, um, this manner at this level, which is, I guess I kind of say it's, it's a little bit like, it's like university. It's like university for horses. You see these, these horses that have almost graduated to this level, like Grand Prix. It's like, it's like Cowboy Grand Prix. And you see these horses that are like, can do amazing things. And I think, well, how do you actually get to that? And then if it seems too mystical, you just take yourself out of the equation. So you think, oh, I could never do that, but just really good people can do that that are not me. And, yeah, so meeting Phil was like he, he just broke it down. He was like there's, there's, no, there's no prize. No one's going to come along and tell you, okay, you're ready to, to do this. You've just got to do it. And once you get in there and do it, you'll learn how to do it. And so, yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest probably greatest experiences that I've had of recent and that has really changed my horsemanship quite a bit. Yeah. Awesome. So with, cause I know when I was chatting to Phil, I spoke about, I put one of my horses, not in a spade, but I can't actually remember the name of it. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if it was a Mona Lisa, yeah. um, but it's got kind of the square port and there's a roller behind it. Yes. Um, yes. I put that in, in my horse who's had, cause he's a reigning trained horse. So he's had ports before, and I've kind of yes. like, I've got a bit of a, I don't know, you could call it like a fetish where I collect bits just to try them on <laughs> different horses. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. um, and I've 
always wanted to use this bit, but I never had a horse for it. And I was like, this bill is pretty broke. I'll just put it in and see what happens. And like, it was just the feel of it was nothing like I felt before. And just the way he kind of held the bit and worked with the bit, like I could still feel stuff that I needed to work through with him, but it just felt totally different. Yeah, um, and it was, you... it was, you could, you could feel yourself kind of getting through to I suppose like the upper levels of the university stage like you said yes yeah it does blow your mind that there is that available to us if we want to um, tap into it because most I think for most of us um, obviously unless you're getting into the higher levels of reigning and stuff like that um, it's basically the snaffle and that's it and um that's kind of all I ever rode in and that's all I ever had been exposed to. And I didn't really know that there was anything else. And even when I saw that there was anything else, I thought that wasn't available to me. And so it was never um, anything that I contemplated. And I was just happy and I was really happy with how my horses were going in the snaffle. And until I was able to make that change and I was the same, I went, I started in a Mona Lisa because the spade looked really scary. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I, as soon as I went to the Mona Lisa, I was like, whoa, my horse can do what? My horse carries yes. himself how? And um, it was like it was like he, my horse, even went, oh, yeah, baby, I look at this. I got this. And I thought, what? He became proud. He became strong. He became tall. He's like he puffed his chest out. And then oh, yeah. he, and, and my dear, I got this. And... <laughs> Yeah, that's what it felt like. And so it was like all these little things that I'd been putting into practice for so long that had actually no purpose, all of a sudden they had a purpose. And, you know, the almost like the hair trigger way that that I had wanted him to be and the in like almost intuitive way that I wanted him to ride all of a sudden came into play when he started being in the two-rain. I ride in the two-rain at the moment. So um, when I when I started riding with the terrain, he was like, well, of course I've been waiting for you to get up to here. Like, yeah, wow. thank you. <laughs> so it's, it's been a, an amazing experience. And yeah, I, I would challenge anyone who is interested that you don't, you don't need a, you don't need a ticket. You don't need permission. You just need maybe a mentor and somebody to bounce off and a little bit of grit and just go for it yeah nice yeah that would um that would yeah a lot of once once people kind of try something and take out that fear of oh what if this what if that like try it and if it doesn't work that's fine you can you'll find out why it doesn't work and then you can improve what doesn't work to work so you can get that to, to that step that's right and like I'm when I'm going to preface this by saying like uh, if you're not aware of it and and you don't know what we talk about when we talk about the hackamore to bridle transition or the if you're talking about it in traditional terms it's called hakim afreno which is just means hackamore to bridle in Spanish it's a Spanish tradition it basically means you you learn to your horse learns to ride in hackamore which is a bozal I use like a five eighths diameter bozal with um with horsehair reins it's a horsehair macardi 
and um, a Makati is just a fancy word for reins and also a lead. So you look like you have three reins, but you don't. Um, <laughs> and the the horsehair is really beneficial because it stops you pulling on your horse's face all the time, and he starts to he starts to see the cue as being the reins laying prickling as opposed to waiting for you to pull on his nose to turn him around. So there is that pre-cue. And once you can ride your horse happily in a hackamore and he's broke in the face, he's he is pretty receptive to, you know, your seat and you're finding that you're not having to touch the hackamore very much at all, then you progress into what is called the two-rein. Now, I'm riding in the two-rein at the moment, which is basically your horse packs a bit, a bridle bit, and um, I, I'm working towards riding in a spade bit. Go and have a look at cool pictures of them. There's some pretty amazing bits out there. Um, and you'll just get on these and if you like anything like me, you'll just like want to collect them all. And they're <laughs> like, it's like a... It's like a trophy. Your horse gets to ride around packing this bit. But the two rein means that he rides in a Bosalita, which is a small hackamore. I'm going to say it's like a half inch. I ride in a half inch diameter hackamore with half inch um, horsehair reins. So he still has that hackamore feeling. He still knows he's being ridden in a hackamore. It's just smaller. It's like a miniature version of what he has been riding in because you are graduating him you are going yes thank you you have graduated from kindergarten now let's move into primary school um by i'm going to honor the education and the effort that you have put in by reducing what is on your face because you have shown me that you are ready for this and by writing you in the half inch you've got half the amount of weight on your face and he just packs that bit around. You just carry the reins in your hand, but he don't really use it. You let him feel that bit in his mouth for as long as he needs to to feel comfortable. And they never get very um, agitated by it um, unless it doesn't fit properly or something. They, the great big surface area of the bit and the spade and the spoon and the cricket that's in their mouth gives them a lot to to hold in their mouth and so there's no join in the in the bit at all so the reins don't work independently so this bit is not to be used to pull on it's not a leverage bit it's a what we call a signal bit so he basically just carries that around just let him pack it for forever and you're just riding in a little hackamore basically and he just packs his bridle around and as soon as he puts it in his mouth, he kind of has to hold his head differently for the angle of the bit and it it's beautiful to watch him because he he goes from this almost like average-looking thing to this regal-looking thing because of the way he holds his head to hold this bit. And then eventually um, when you find that um, you don't need to be picking up on the two-rein very much at all and he's pretty much riding just off intuition and, and your seat and your small leg aids and a little bit of hand aids if you need it, then when you realise that the 
Bosalita is not needed and he's showing you that that he is at that level where he's proud and confident and and steady enough he can become what's called straight up and straight up in the bridle is you don't ride with the boss leader at all and you just ride straight in your bridle with your bridle reins and they're with Ramal's and um it's a beautiful piece of fine artwork to see a beautiful bridle horse and he can do any job that needs to be done um but he can also perform at a very high level as well. And there's just something really magical when you see it. And it's something yeah. that I thought I could never do, but here I am. <laughs> yeah. And that's like having that accomplishment, I suppose you could almost put it to, you know, where people go and compete a lot and they want to compete for buckles, prize money, all that type of stuff this is the same thing, but you're not competing with anyone. You're competing with you and your horse to, well, you're not even competing. I suppose you're kind of just building it, that relationship where you can get the highest standard for both of you. And he's kind of a horse that can go and do anything, but also like you just celebrate him for who he is. You just celebrate him for the absolute badass horse that he's built himself into through the hours and hours and hours and hours of time that you've spent honoring him, checking in on him, moving forward, moving back, moving up. And then he becomes this this thing that that needs to be celebrated for who he is. So I think yep. that's something really amazing, regardless of whether you take that to the show pen or not. Exactly. So over your over your years of working horses and um you know, speaking with different trainers and stuff like that, what's your favorite bit and saddle that you like to use? Yeah, I um, I really enjoy riding in my Wade saddle. Now, they've got super popular in the last little while, but um, I think I got one before that was super popular, but I know everyone says that, so <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> my, my, Phil, my mate Phil Rohde, he's like was in his 70s and he's probably thinking, what the heck, I got them before they were cool. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But, yeah, no, I really enjoy riding in uh, my Wade saddle. My Wade is made by Sean Lenane and it's got 72 hours worth of carving on it. It is a work wow. of art on its own. It, it won um, Sydney, Sydney Royal Easter Show uh, supreme horse exhibit so like beat all the horses like wouldn't you be salty if you like had this beautiful horse that you took in and then like a saddle one yes. over you <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> anyway um yeah so i've i ride in a wade saddle i really love my wade um i can do everything i need to do in it i love it because it it has what we call a dressage seat so it has a centered seat so your your head your back of your head your shoulders your hips and your heels are in line because speaks so well to my English background. Um, and uh, you can do anything you need to do in it. So if I need to, like, get up and gallop after a cow, I can because I need to get up out of my saddle rope. I can. It's got a nice big post horn to spread the pressure across my horse's wither and shoulders if I'm roping anything. But it's also, um, like, it's also it gives me enough room to – get some more advanced maneuvers within if I need to stop or like cut something out, if I need to do some cutting or something like that, I can still get back off my horse if I need to. So I, I kind of joke to people that it's like 
the true all-purpose saddle. Like if you really want something that you can, it's like the versatility saddle. You can do basically anything you need to get done in it. I can jump a log in it if I need to and um, all that. So I really love my wade and I put it on everything. I have a couple of different ones made by different people, but um, that's the one that I ride in the most. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I rate it. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, um, so um, a bit, we were just talking about bits. So at the moment I am riding in a bit of a combination between a Mona Lisa in my two-rain um, and I also have like a what we call a spoon spade, which I ride in as well. My horse is pretty hot. So I'm learning to um, – I rotate between those two when I don't – when I don't kind of feel I'm getting what I need to out of the Mona Lisa, I'm going to the spade. But when sometimes I feel like I'm getting too much out of the spade, so I'll go back to the Mona Lisa. So I fluctuate between the two. So that's what I'm using at the moment. But ask me next week and it might change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, so just recently you got involved – up in Queensland with the race to ranch. Um, you So you had 100 days to prepare an off-the-track thoroughbred for kind of ranch work, basically. How did you get yeah. involved in that? Yeah, um, it was an amazing experience. I got involved in it because I saw that ranch was becoming big in Australia and I thought man this is right down my alley like I don't have to do endless mindless circles but my horse probably isn't um like that showy but this is an event that my horse could probably really succeed at because he's he he can work a cow really well and that's part of ranch events um obstacles are no brainer for him so that's awesome he can do an okay raining pattern too so I feel like it was the true event that showed true versatility across the horse and you needed to have a pretty handy horse to be able to do all the phases of it. So I thought, well, I'm going to get into that. Hackmore, which at that time I was in Hackmore. Um, and that was really awesome. So I really started just following. Um, I went to a few of the the ones down in Tamworth when we lived down in New South Wales and we moved to Queensland I was still looking for ranch events around and I found some over near the central, uh, the Sunshine Coast and I went over there and the organiser of those shows, Naomi Lee, um, I went to a couple of them and she said to me, oh, you know, we've got this this event coming up um, in October. You know, it, it's, it's going to be pretty fun. Um, it's called Cowgirls Gathering and I'm like, cowgirls gathering sign me up like what is this I'm in I don't even know <laughs> and um she said yeah we're gonna have some ranch events there and I was like yeah I'm there like whatever it is I'm anyway um a little while later I saw something pop up on their Facebook page and it said um race to ranch um we're looking for applications for trainers to take a thoroughbred off the track and you have 100 days to retrain it and compete at cowgirls gathering in ranch versatility and I thought, like, mate, it's made for me. <laughs> like, I started off in thoroughbreds. Like, I know thoroughbreds like the back of my hand. No worries. And I'm, I'm really keen on ranch and I reckon I could 
pretty well turn my hand at almost anything to open a gate or jump over a log or something that needed to be done. I'm sure I could do that. So sounds like fun. I'm, I'm going to do it. So I sent in my application and, uh, and Naomi said, you didn't need to send in an application. I know you can write. I've seen you write. And I was like, yeah, I know. But like, that was part of the criteria. Like you got to send in a video. And she was like, no, I really appreciate that. Thank you. So I sent in a video and, and I, I got picked. I, did actually not expect to get picked because I started to realize the caliber of people that they were accepting and, and that were entering. I was like, oh man, I've got no hope. I've got no <laughs> hope against these against these professionals. No way. But um, it turns out that they did really great. They got like a cross section of kind of women in the horse industry. So they got some professional trainers. They got some semi professional trainers. They got some seasoned you know, competitors and they got some just working people like me. Um, And it was a great cross-section. Ten women got got invited to do it. And so I was lucky to to be the country bumpkin that got (laughs) got accepted, to get accepted. And um, that was great. We had to source our own thoroughbreds and um, that was a little bit of a, that was a bit of a journey actually trying to, first of all, you're getting a thousand thrown at you left, right and centre because, um, you know, they're always looking for somewhere for them to go. But then it was kind of the logistics of you couldn't get them too early because we weren't allowed to start working with them until the 1st of June. So you didn't want them too early. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to jump on racehorses when they're ready today. Like they can't, you can't say, oh, can you hang on to them for a week for me? Because usually after a week they've found somewhere else. Yep. So it was a, uh, it was a bit of a juggle. I got onto a really lovely gelding uh, from Ningen um, at Nidabo and I was pretty, I was pretty excited about that because um, they were actually coming to Kanamala for another race and they dropped him off and he was a beautiful horse. He was very, very sweet. And um, I just got along with him like a house on fire. And I I started riding him. Um, he probably had about two weeks at my place and then I started riding him. And the first day I did, I thought maybe there was something off when I was riding him around the round pen. And then the second day he kind of didn't get any better and he was kind of lifting his leg in this weird sort of, his back leg in this weird action and then, yeah, I got someone to have a look at it and turns out he'd done his stifle. And I don't I, I kind of my theory is that maybe his stifle was on the way out and that's why he was starting to lose and that's why they they sacked him. And it was just the rest that kind of was enough to sort of him to let down and for it to let go. Um so I was pretty devastated about that, to be honest. I really loved him I, I, and he was such a cool goofball, little quiet horse. Um, so I, friend, I was already about three weeks into the competition, the challenge at this time, and I frantically rang around and I, I just got on every Facebook page I could think of and called every person I could think of and I finally found one that was available down in the Hunter Valley. And that's where I'm from. I'm from down in the Hunter Valley, but... I lived 10 hours away (laughs) (laughs) but I thought okay so I got in my car and my trailer my dog left my kids at home and I 
have two kids and I, I left them at home with, with dad and I sorted it down to Tori Bernstein in Vasey and uh, Mel, the start owner there, she's had one that had recently retired and she said, no, I think she'll be great. So on she went and <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had a great time. We had, we, she, uh, she arrived and, you know, she came from a big stud as opposed to Gus, um, my first gelding. Um, Gus came, he was a bush country racehorse. So um, as like Darlene, who was my mare that I got, um, she wasn't. She was a city horse. She raced in, in um, she raced in Gosford. She was based in Gosford. So she was like 100% metro horse. And I just literally dumped her out in the paddock <laughs> with the red dirt, my geldings and emus that always wander around my paddock whether I want them to or not. And I was like, well, this is your home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Gus didn't didn't uh, look twice at anything, but I think made it was a culture shock for her for sure. Yep. So, yeah, then we 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 had a great time. We so basically, I only had about eighty five days, I think, before the competition, and um, I just had to get going, and it was it was really interesting she kept trying to kill herself quite a bit which i'm which i'm told is very common for uh thoroughbreds coming straight out of like high pressure racing environment because they don't really know how to look after themselves so she would always be coming in every morning with some kind of injury out in the paddock but you know to be a ranch horse she had to she had to be authentic she had to live i couldn't box her because then she's not a ranch horse that that wouldn't be that wouldn't be part of the the whole program was to have her like sure of herself and and well rounded and so I didn't box her I just was like well you're either going to kill yourself or you're going to survive and so she actually survived which I was very glad about and we had a very interesting journey I mean um, you know I, I said I, like I have two kids and so I had to try and train her to do everything she had to she had to do a cow working pattern uh, she had to do so she she did um like a reigning pattern which was working cow horse pattern three um at, at the finals we got that pattern a few weeks in advance um so she had to learn how to do that she had to learn how to go over obstacles but you know i live on a station i don't really have like obstacles as such i just have like the bush which i guess is pretty well <laughs> which is pretty well um like authentic ranch horse anyway, right? So yeah, she had very to authentic. Go, yeah, she had to like learn how to work the gates at the back of the cattle yards and stuff like that. And it was, I'm sure she just literally gave up like about halfway through. She gave up like questioning anything. She was basically like, my life is so weird now. Like nothing surprises me anymore. I'm just going to, I'm yep, like you want me to like jump this creek no problem <laughs> I'll do that she never she never questioned anything I think because she was just so like like way out of her comfort zone like every day that she just stopped questioning anything I asked her to do she was like okay this is what we do now we 
wave in and out of barrels and then we go and master some turtle and <laughs> no problem I'll do that so yeah uh, that was basically my training um, I didn't really have a training program for her it was just basically use her on the place and get her um, to where she was pretty handy to do anything that I needed to do um, which she did she I managed to um, I managed to to get her to where she she she's like a good horse to go to work on and um I think one of the things that we didn't get which before the competition which I regret but I realize there's no point regretting it anyway was that um living on a station people think you just have cattle everywhere but you don't actually have cattle everywhere and you can't just if you feel like it um, usually there's a job to be done and you don't get cattle into the yards for no reason. In our case, the yards are about 25Ks away from the cattle, so we're not going to bring them in to work them. So um, we run like a rotational um, time-controlled grazing operation here. So the cattle get moved from one cell of the paddock to another almost daily or every second day. So we would we we would move our cattle quite often, but sometimes most of the time it wasn't um, accessible for a trailer or it was too far to trot out for her and that kind of thing. So she didn't really get a lot of cattle exposure. Um, and the only exposure that exposure that she did get was pushing cattle or like mustering cattle, not actually stopping, turning, blocking, and working cattle because we don't really have a need for that. That yeah at this time of year anyway maybe later in the year we will but yeah so yeah that was my training program um just work around kids and everything I found it was quite difficult um she was quite herd bound which I didn't expect but I have been told that's a that's pretty common for thoroughbreds like especially they've come off really big studs um so I contended with that but yeah, we um, we almost didn't make it to the competition. About a week before the competition, um, James decided that he would um, help me out by giving her a quick trim. But he was in a rush, and he was trying to do that as well as manage twenty five thousand other things and cut her a little bit too short. And she was really lame, and I was really worried. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be able to compete. And but I thought, you know what? We'll go, we'll go to town and once we get to town, we'll probably find a farrier and we'll be able to get some shoes on. But we don't have farriers out here and I didn't have any shoes to fit her because she'd just been riding without shoes. But I got her short and, and, and she was fine. So, awesome. yeah, we, we got to the competition and um, none of us other 10 girls had ever met each other before. So that was really cool. We, um, we actually all met at the competition. We'd obviously had Zoom calls and, you know, seen each other on Facebook quite a bit, um, but we, we had never met and that was really lovely to get there and just meet all these girls that you kind of feel like you've known for 100 days and shared the ups and the downs. Like quite a few girls had ended up having to have second horses and stuff like that because their horses would had gone lame or had like not not made it through to the 100 days. Um, so that was really, really beautiful. So when you when you got to the competition, what um, 
Like what did what was the competition? Yeah, so we we each um, had to do it was four phases of the competition. So our first phase was um, like a ranch versatility. So like like that's a ranch trail class, and that was um, different obstacles. So we had to do um, trot over some poles, and then the next obstacle was pretty confronting it was a bridge but it was a huge mother of a bridge um (laughs) and I had never gone over a bridge before I think the only thing I'd ever asked her to walk over was a pallet um but I think um I had instilled enough of a work ethic in her that she was just like yeah no problems. I've never seen anything that is remotely like this, but we're just going to give it a go. So the three horses before me actually didn't make it over that bridge for the class and um, that was a shame, but she did. Um, she just, damn, she never hesitated. She just jumped straight on the top of that bridge and I heard the whole crowd go, <gasps> <laughs> because there were no sides on the bridge and it was quite narrow. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and we hesitated on the top there for a tiny little bit and then down she went and she was fine. And then we had to do a log drag, um, which because I rope a lot, um, that was no no drama for her. She was fine. And then we had to do a um, set of cones and then we had to go into a chute and we had to um, rope a dummy out of the chute Then we had to side pass over a log and then trot out and um, – I was so proud she was she got no penalties and she 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 got went out with a 72 which and she won that class which I was so proud of her for because That's awesome. This is like a this is like an indoor this is like there were heaps of people in the stands there was noise there was lights there was everything like I can imagine she'd just be like straight back into race mode and not once did she deviate and I rode her in the Hackamore too which um which like a lot of people were like, oh, my gosh, how you do that? But she was just so with me the whole way and I, I was very I was very proud of her. That's fantastic. Yeah. So the second, the second phase of the competition then was our reigning pattern um, and we did the working cow horse pattern three and um, that was a hard pattern for, for these racehorses. Like they had to go in and they had to do, you know, two large fasts, which you think, oh, racehorses go fast. But that's <laughs> like, that's really hard to do it fast in a controlled manner in an indoor with a crowd and then then two large fasts and down to a small slow, which that is a, that is a trait that, that is very difficult for, for these racehorses to do. They, they, they're not trained to come down quickly. So it, I was really proud of her. Um, she, and again, um, we got a couple of penalties because I chose to take the simple change as opposed to a flying change, um, which I was okay with taking those couple of penalties because I wasn't 100% on our flying changes in that high-pressure environment. And again, she just did absolutely fantastically and um, I was very, very proud of her. She never, ever once got... Um, uh, razzed up by the by the um, atmosphere, and so she did really great. After that, um, I when I'd finished my raining pattern, then I called for my cow. They let a cow into the arena, and we we had to do a box. 
um, which was just get two or three turns on the fence. And then um, we had to take our cow down the fence and then we had to box them on the other end. Um, that was enough for these racehorses. I don't think they could have achieved a working cow horse pattern in 100 days, like a full working cow horse pattern. So I was very happy that it was just box down the fence, box and then bring your cow back down the fence and pass the centre marker. And, um, and she achieved that. That was a fair bit of pressure for her, um, never stopping or, or pushing or driving work in cattle like that before. But she, she stayed with me and I was pretty happy with her there. She probably didn't do as great as a futurity horse, but she's not a futurity horse, so I was pretty happy with that. And then the, the final element that we had to achieve was a, was a freestyle class. And um, a lot of the girls did some amazing things. Like, I mean, one of the girls brought a, brought a ute in the back of the, back of the uh, arena, arena there to get their horse to jump on the back. And there was some amazing stuff, amazing costumes and, and everything like that. And I was a little bit hesitant because mine wasn't that exciting so I was standing outside the arena thinking, oh, God, this probably isn't going to go down as exciting or as well, but it felt true to me. And um, I went in with a um, like a Spanish theme and we actually worked a garrocha, which I was really... Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, I was really proud of her for doing. And <laughs> James had actually made the garrocha for me like a couple of days before I left. So I didn't actually have a lot of chance to practice with it. Um, and he just made it out of like two pieces of dowel stuck together with a bit of gal water part. Um, so it was pretty, <laughs> it was, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty redneck, but like it worked. And then I, I roped and I, and I actually rode her in the two rain, which um, was more of a symbol of like my respect for her and, and the the level that she had managed to get to in such a short time. I just really wanted to honour her and, and the journey that she had made. And um, it was kind of emotional, to be honest. She It wasn't exciting, but it was really emotional. And I had a lot of people after after it come up to me saying, you had me in tears, I was crying. And um and I kind of was too. <laughs> Mind you, I was pregnant <laughs> at the time. So, <laughs> so maybe that had something to do with it. But we were very, very lucky and very fortunate to come away with co-champion um, of the Race to Ranch event. And we actually shared that honour with um, the other girl, as I say, she... She's Jane Moore. She, she actually manages a big place um, up in the north. And um, it's so funny. We were the two girls that we thought, man, we're the bush kids. We're the kids around in the sticks. We're competing against these pros. Like we've got no hope here. And there's actually this cool picture of us before we went into our first class. Like we're just chat, chuckling to each other thinking, what are we doing? Like <laughs> what are we doing here? And amazingly like both of us shared the shared the win, and I couldn't be happier. I couldn't be happier to share it with anyone, but Jane. She was, she put her heart and soul into her horse too. Her horse was a uh, was a second horse. Her first horse hurt itself, and so she got a horse from Hong Kong. Um, so yeah, I was very proud, very very proud. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys should be proud for doing that because just trying to train a thoroughbred. You know, or just not even a thoroughbred, but training any horse 
to do anything, you know, in a hundred days is kind of difficult anyway. And to get them confident enough to be able to do stuff. Like there's people that train horses and get a job done quickly, but the horses aren't even that confident. But to be able to get a confident horse out of it, that's, that's where I think most people get respected is, oh, you've done an awesome job. Your horse is calm. Your horse is confident. This is great. Yeah, you know, um, that's the one thing about Thoroughbreds, Have, um, and I have great respect. And I know they're not like they come sometimes not very celebrated, but I have great respect for Thoroughbreds. If they can survive the horrors that they go through, the absolute hell that they have to live, if they can come out of that and still be like somehow semi-sane, they have some serious grit They have some serious heart. And not only that, one thing that it was a great journey for me in that there's not much you can force a thoroughbred to do. Like you can blow one pretty easily. They are a hot blood, like they're a hot-blooded horse. And so if we wanted to get it done, we couldn't make them do it. Um, And that was the true test. So it definitely was. For sure. Um, so what's so now you guys have finished that competition. What are your plans for Darlene? Yeah, I've actually got Darlene for sale. Um, I wanted to sell her a because I'm pregnant, and b because I really believe in the concept of Race to Ranch. Race to Ranch was thought of by Naomi because she believed that thoroughbreds had a lot to offer too. That probably wasn't. Um, realized and so she thought heck if we can show that these horses can like get this done and not just get this done but get this done well in a hundred days we might be able to change people's perception of thoroughbreds and then the culture around thoroughbreds the value of thoroughbreds and so I really felt compelled to advertise her as a valuable asset because um that's what they should be they should be valuable assets they shouldn't just go to dog food Yes. Yep. Exactly. They're still an animal. They can still, we can still have fun with them and build that relationship, even though they've, for some people they've done their time for, they can still go on and, you know, still live a happy life wherever it may be and whoever with. Yeah. And not only happy, I think like to me, Darlene's damn useful. Like she can, she can get everything done that I need to get done and she can get it done quite well. And, probably a heart bigger than many horses I've I've had much to do with like there's no quit in her and that's one thing there's probably no quit in a lot of thoroughbreds because they that they they breathe that out (laughs) they breathe breathe the quit out so they've got they've got the heart I say she's got a heart the size of Texas and I, I I definitely agree with that yeah nice that's that's really good to hear yeah what advice what advice would you give to someone who wants to do the race to ranch Oh, this is, I have so much advice. <laughs> this is such a great, this is such a great question. I think um, I've been thinking about it recently. My advice is A, go for it. It will change you. It You will grow in ways that you never thought that you needed to grow. You know, there's, you can't, you can't force these horses to do anything. You have to figure out, you've only got a hundred days. You can't blow them up. You've got to figure out how to work with them to get it done and keep them sane and keep yourself sane 
in that time as well. So if you're contemplating next year entering, I would 100% say enter. Um, we probably learned a lot of lessons about the horses that the types of horses that we chose to do ranch work. Um, quite a lot of us struggled with soundness issues um, with them. You know, as everyone knows, these horses go through a lot before they get um, before we get them. And my advice is get the youngest horse you can, which it goes against the um, goes against the norm, but the two winners were the youngest horses there. Darlene's only four. That means she's only had she only had eleven starts. So she only had eleven times to get into race horse mode. Whereas some of these horses, it would have taken them a lot longer than a hundred days to get out of race mode because they'd been living it for so much longer. So my advice is get the youngest horse you can. They've had a um, physical damage, the least amount of emotional stress on them from racing, and um, trying to have a good um, rapport with a good trainer that has a good reputation or a good breed, like a good breeder, breeder or stud owner. Um, try not to just like get one that's been passed around a fair bit and stuff like that. So, um, and the and the other advice that I have is just treat them like a horse. They're not a race horse. As soon as they as soon as they come to you, they're not a race horse. And I kind of say that about, about any horse, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my horse has been abused or, you know, my horse has had this happen to it. Well, today they don't. Today that stops. Today you treat them with the honour and the respect that a horse that has never had any of those things happen to them, that's the way you treat them from today. And they will learn to grow into that, you know, like, because you give them the benefit of the doubt, you don't treat them like damaged goods, you don't walk around them on eggshells. They grow into that that you that you that vision that you have for them. And that that can be true for any horse, but definitely true for these race horses. Like when I stopped modelly molly coddling her and when I stopped treating her like she needed to be wrapped in cotton wool and I just said, Well, you're a horse now. She blossomed. So that they are my uh, they're my advice, but also be willing to um to have a few scrapes and a few cuts and a few learning curves as they learn how to be a horse. Because remember, quite a lot of horses that have come from any kind of high pressure environment, they've never learned how to be a horse. So they don't know how to do things like come off a trailer without backing off the edge or you know, not go through a fence that they can't really see or, you know, deal with extra things around them. So that is that is some advice that I that I have. And um call me <laughs> if, if you wanna do it. I, I, I wanna be I wanna be heavily involved and I want I wanna help people succeed um, at this as much as I can and 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 uh, thoroughbreds are great and um I really love I really believe in the concept of this event so um yeah I'll be there I'll be back in everybody and anybody who wants to throw their hat in the ring and even if you're a diehard paint guy or paint girl or even if you're a if you're a diehard quarter horse person I can guarantee the tools that you would learn from this challenge would help you through your horsemanship journey regardless of the horses that you deal with Man, I tell you what, this chat with you has just not opened my eyes, but it's, you know, 
some light bulbs have come on and it's like, you know, just talking to you about certain stuff has been really cool and really just like, oh, so there's more to life than just this, or there's more to life than just this. You can <laughs> apply all this stuff to just anything really. You can. Yes, you can. It's... And don't be afraid to walk a different road. Yes, that's very, very true. Because I think, I think that's a big, like you've got everyone that does things in a certain way because this person did it. And you're doing it differently and people go, oh, you know what? You don't know what you're doing, but you'll still get to the same place. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And don't be afraid to walk your own road. Seek out people. There are lots of people around that are doing things differently. I say in quotation marks, there are a lot of people, although you can't see them and although they're not loud, they're out there. There's a lot more people that, that do this way of horses and that, have that different mindset with horses there's a lot more out of us than what you think so seek it out go talk to people go ask people if you're interested and you want to just you'll find them awesome well Brittany, this has been an absolutely awesome chat and i can't wait to actually meet you in person um, yeah likewise. hopefully when, when when covid opens up we can you know go and all meet up at a ranch ranch um yep something or other mate i'll be there i drink a few beers <laughs> i'll be there i'll be there and i won't be pregnant how about that <laughs> <laughs> that sounds perfect awesome well it's been great chatting awesome. with you thank you very much all right no worries you have a good weekend and i'll talk to you yeah, later you too. Okay, okay thanks bye bye <laughs>